0: You're listening to Vernacular Podcast. Welcome to episode six of Vernacular Podcast, where we are talking to Anne, who is a journalist based in Houston, Texas. Before we get to our conversation with Anne, however, we want to encourage you, our listeners, to head to iTunes and give us a podcast review. Even if it's one star, we still appreciate the feedback, and it helps us drive publicity for the show if our listeners give us ratings on the iTunes store. So please do that, especially if you're listening to the podcast through iTunes. It would make things a lot easier for us. If you listen to us online or are unsure of how to access us through iTunes, please head to our website, vernacularpodcast.com and hit the get on iTunes button on the homepage. Also want to give a plug to all of our listeners uh, to remind you that everyone is eligible to interview with us on Van Podcast. And we want submissions, so head to our website and submit an interview questionnaire form to let us know that you'd like to be interviewed.
1: And if the questionnaire sounds daunting, it's pretty short and kind of fun, so.
0: Yeah, there are fun questions like, you are throwing a dinner and can invite anyone from history, living or dead, who do you invite?
1: Yeah. Or what's something that few people know about you?
0: Or what are your favorite books? So yeah. pretty simple questions. This is not like, you know, give us your social security number and we'll, okay, we'll do an <laughs> exhaustive background check or anything like that. So anyway, just uh, wanted to make a plug for those things. And next we'll do our tip of the week.
1: Yes. Hashtag tip of the week.
0: All right. So your tip of the week this week is from a personal experience that I had this past week. Uh, and I just want to encourage everyone out there to know your barber. Now, this past week, I went in to get my haircut. As I was sitting in the chair, the barber told me that there was a sale on crossbows, and I was like, "Oh, cool. Uh, are you a are you a bow hunter? Like do you, you hunt with a crossbow?" And He was like, "No, but if I was gonna kill somebody, I'd want to use a crossbow." <laughs> And I was oh like, "This escalated quickly." <laughs> so I'm sitting down in the chair. He's <laughs> getting the shears ready to <laughs> to cut something, and uh, then he proceeds to tell me that you know lots of people think they want a rifle to kill people, but rifles are noisy. With a bow, it's silent death. Oh my god! <laughs> I was just like, "This is very uncomfortable." I,
1: and he didn't seem like he was joking I mean, at he all. He didn't seem
0: like he was joking, and then he made the like like a sound of an arrow hitting a target. And he was like, all you have to do is go get your arrow after you shoot.
1: (laughs) Wow. It sounds like he's mad at somebody. So I
0: had a silent haircut. (laughs) It was very uncomfortable. So uh, I'll just leave you with that. Know your barber. Fortunately, I'm alive. I came home to Sally and our daughter that day.
1: And told me that story.
0: But it made me very uncomfortable and I will not be getting a haircut from that barber again
1: and more specifically know that your barber is not a serial killer
0: (laughs) yes that's very important as well know that your barber is not a serial killer if we can sum up this tip of the week in one sentence that's what it is
1: (laughs) all right well now on to ann
0: all right welcome back to vernacular we are here with ann snyder and thank you so much for joining us today
2: sure
0: uh, Anne lives in Houston, Texas. Uh, but before we go further, I'll ask Anne to just say a few brief words about herself and introduce herself to you all.
2: Sure. So, very happy to be here. Um, okay. So, I am um, kind of in a hybrid role right now. I am. I come from a journalism background, and have come here with like a specific interest in studying like all the shifting demographics that Houston in particular has in spades, but kind of um, I think at least represents where the country at large is going to be in 20 years and just looking at dynamics between different ethnic enclaves and assimilation patterns um, of various immigrant groups. um, So kind of like where uh, immigrant communities meet class divide, meet Sort of the values, moral and religious values, flowing amidst it all is sort of my the nub of my interest. And I was basically given a grant to write about that and freelance some of that material um, by a foundation here. It's, it happens to be an ecumenical Christian foundation, although they're interested in me writing for secular mainstream um outlets. I am right now staring over treetops that are shaken of all their water that was uh, drenched the city a week ago. Um, but I am not a native Texan. I've lived in Houston for a year and a half, almost exactly. Um, and then kind of am a mixed mutt of D.C. and Boston and Chicago for college and overseas as a kid. So um Houston has actually been very fun because while it's sort of going into the heartland of the U.S., it's also it's become such a diverse city that when I first got here, I was like, "Oh, this is like my life in a city." <laughs> so, um, yeah. Nice. Well, thank you. Sure.
0: Well, our faithful listeners will know that the first segment we do is normally the current events segment where we talk about something that's recently happened in the news. But given Anne's experience as a journalist, we thought that we'd do something a little bit different today. Instead of talking about a singular topic in the news. Of late, we would actually share some of our favorite pieces of good, good journalism that we've seen over the past 12 months or so. So I'll kick it off by asking Sally uh, what pieces you've seen, Sally.
1: Okay. So, um, this might only be interesting to me because I wrote my dissertation on this topic, but last summer, um, when there was a lot of hubbub over surrogacy issues overseas in Thailand specifically there, the New York times put together this series on surrogacy, which I thought was really well done. It was, um, they just covered a lot of the different angles of the issue, um, from a very unbiased perspective. So just,
0: just explain what surrogacy is briefly.
1: Oh, sure. That's just when um, a single person or a couple contract with a woman to have a baby. And commercial surrogacy is what these this series was about, which is where they actually pay the woman to carry the baby for them. And um, the, the series of articles talked about surrogacy in America, surrogacy overseas, um, surrogacy that is legal and illegal. So I just thought that was a really interesting series. Yeah, it
0: sounds really interesting.
1: My second article is by Ezekiel Emanuel, and it was written in The Atlantic last October, Why I Hope to Die at 75. And it's just a really unique argument for why he wants to die early, or at least not to prolong his life um, by taking advantage of all of our medical innovations.
0: Yeah, but the the title, as is the case with so many online articles these days, was a, a bit of, uh, it was a bit clickbait. Sure, click-baity. it was a hook. So, so the, <laughs> yeah. the, the headline didn't quite accurately describe what the article is about. So Ezekiel Emanuel is the brother-in-law of Rahm Emanuel, formerly chief of staff to President Obama and now the mayor of Chicago. And Ezekiel, his brother, is a very well-known professor of uh, medicine at Penn. Does a lot of work in public health policy. Uh, I think fashioned large parts of the Affordable Care Act, though don't quote me on that. But Emanuel's argument here is not that he actually wants to die at 75, but rather, well, there there are several facets to this argument. One is is this the policy cost of keeping people alive when certain uh, certain medicines could be purchased for younger people at the same price? And so Emmanuel is saying, in part, you know, don't spend the money on me when you spend it on other people, which is noble. Uh, but the other part of his argument is just that, you know, there's a point at which. we shouldn't be artificially extending human life that, you know, maybe there's just a time for us to die and it would be better off to recognize that and, you know, head off into the great beyond uh, when that time comes rather than just trying to keep us alive through, you know, drug cocktails uh, and other means that are both expensive, but also could decrease quality of life significantly. So pretty thought-provoking argument there.
1: Yeah. So we'll link to all those articles, but all right, and do you want to share your articles
0: or comment on any of the previous? Yeah,
1: that's true. Uh,
2: <laughs> fascinating. Uh, please link to them. I feel like I need to get totally educated in surrogacy. Um, it sounds a little bit like you guys. I, I think the older I'm getting, I'm not. I'm following the news. Like I'm getting the reports. Like I, I, I get the soundbite titles. I read. I do read some news, but I, I tend to just be more interested in, um, tri- like. Art you know, cultural analysis or observation or trends. You know,
0: I was, I was in a conversation at work the other day where we were talking about, um, basically our favorite cable news, uh, TV shows. And I had nothing to contribute to the conversation because we don't have cable because I mean, I, I have no, I have no desire to listen to a bunch of talking heads on Fox or CNN or MSNBC talk about the issues of the day, because I think it's not a medium that lends itself to good analysis Right. Um, and there are just better ways to spend my time. So all of my news is from reading or listening to radio. Well, and then aside podcasts. from the,
1: the, aside from the like skin deep analysis, all the information that you would gain from that you could get elsewhere. Right. <laughs> so, anyways,
2: your question, uh, news piece. Uh, I so I. Um, loved this piece. It was actually in Time Magazine uh, probably five months ago. Joel Stein, and I i don't actually remember the exact title. It may have just been called The Gig Economy or The Rise of the Freelance Economy, but I just thought it was like a very perceptive, kind of comprehensive, but narrative look at um, just the rise of Uber and platforms like Airbnb and TaskRabbit and Kickstarter and how on the one hand he kind of went through days and he like himself became I don't know if it was Task Rabbit, but he like he became one of these freelance people that get paid to like screw on a nail in your IKEA furniture because you can't figure out that part <laughs> nice. of the instructions, or like very specific tasks that that a huge segment of the economy is you know is offering. And um, I just thought it was interesting on a, on a number of levels. In part because while not you know there still may be you know a small you know a slender slice of people that are Uber drivers and that are taking that up as either their primary or extra source of income. There's a broader economy increasingly of people who are no longer working for institutions and are either working for themselves or you know obviously it's become very um, popular. The whole it, we're in an age of innovation, so people are all becoming you know there you know entrepreneurship is a thing more people are willing to do. Um, and I just was like provoked not so much because the author. Um, brought it up per se. but in, in learning more about the day in the life of someone who's really you know working for themselves in a way that enables fluidity and flexibility in their schedules. Um, and if they rack up a certain star rating, you know their, their um, pay goes up. There's, there was so much like the, the note throughout the piece was all around like their independence but also their isolation.
1: Huh. That sounds really interesting.
2: Um, so that was fun, and then the other one actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna show my um, overloaded memory right now. But it actually came out this week. There was a piece written on called "The End of Summer Vacation." Um, maybe I was attracted to it because I'm yearning for a vacation.
0: But
2: um, <laughs> it was just talking about how no longer. I mean, it's just becoming rarer and rarer. Even if you work for a company that gives you five weeks off, say, which you know supposedly millennials have have been clamoring for you know for the last 10 years um people are a afraid post-recession there's just been a, a, a very steep decline of people actually taking their requisite vacation days because they're afraid if they leave they may lose their job but also just with all the telecommuting with the smartphones you know no one's actually taking time off and this is really hurt productivity over the arc of years as like employers look at what their output is and the sort of health, the overall health of their employees. And I, the most fascinating part of the piece was, um, some CEO has decided to implement a policy wherein he, it's called a, he, he off, he, if you, if you work for this company, you take what's called a paid, paid vacation, which is, I think it was two weeks you have to take two weeks straight and you and you get paid an extra six thousand dollars on the promise that you disconnect from all of your devices so you go off grid and you'll get paid extra cash and obviously so anyways and he's and supposedly it's working really well and i was like sure can i work for this yeah Yeah, that's that's a a good incentive (laughs) my goodness
1: That's awesome. It It sounds like he really cares about his employees.
2: I, I know. And I, yeah, I just thought it was great. And I think just more philosophically, I all of a sudden have become more and more disturbed by my own, like just ADD because of our age and from commitments to email to, you know, social media, et cetera. And just even, even just this nod to vacation itself, like, the whole value of vacation is, like, focused leisure, you know? Right. It's like, and I've just been more and more convinced that happiness comes when you get lost in one thing and are not multitasking. Um, and so there was just something compelling in the, in at least the fact that this was getting mentioned in a cover article. Definitely.
0: Yeah, I saw, I saw an article or a, the, a study or an article that reference a study that found that 1 in 12 or 1 in 13 smartphone users actually demonstrate uh, addiction behaviors with regard to their <laughs> smartphones. So I think the, the problem is not that people are working too hard and need to take a break from working hard, but just that they're overly connected and need to take a break from being connected.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Which makes yeah. me think of that phone that you saw a Kickstarter campaign for. Oh
0: yeah. Yeah. There's this phone called the light phone, L I G H T. And it is just, it's, it's a, it's like the size of a credit card. It can almost fit in your wallet. And the idea is that it can only make and receive calls. No so texts, you can leave your no smartphone web browsing.
1: Yeah, you leave your smartphone at home and then you go wherever and you just bring your light phone and so any calls that you receive to your smartphone will be transferred to your light phone and you can make calls but you can't do anything else. Right. Interesting. Yeah, which is kind of cool. I mean, I
0: I think I would spend 100 bucks for that.
1: Yeah, I think so too. Yeah. It's it's nice to have that option, like to know that you have you can make a call but you don't have all of that other stuff right at your fingertips.
2: Right.
1: That's fascinating. huh? Okay, Zach, what are your articles?
0: <laughs> okay, so I also have a couple articles. Uh, the first is one I think that everyone should read, and that is called What ISIS Really Wants by Graham Wood. Mm-hmm. This was uh, the Atlantic cover article, I want to say a month and a half ago. Um, I know, Sally, you read it, and you're probably familiar with it. Yeah. Um, but this it's a lengthy piece, but definitely worth your time because in it, uh, Wood explains uh, or explores a lot of the aspects of ISIL that I think don't get good press in, for example, cable news, like we were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, he contrasts them, uh, implicitly at least, with other extremist movements like al-Qaeda and shows the differences. But he also does a really good job, I think... At highlighting the theological and in many ways apocalyptic narrative that ISIL is trying to promote and in that way I think it really helps us understand the foe uh, that the United States and a coalition is engaged against in the Middle East right now um, and it helps he helps us understand that this foe is is very different from uh, the Al Qaeda of yesteryear um, you know uh, bin Laden and Ayman al-Zawahiri's movement Um, and so that's a very interesting article. He explores a lot of good themes and I think it's a really good one to read, especially if you are going to be listening to the cable news and, uh, listening to the pundits debate back and forth about ISIS, because the bottom line is I think a lot of those people don't really know what they're talking about. Um, and Wood does a very good job at exploring a lot of those things and he doesn't do all the work. There's a lot more research to be done and there are other good people exploring these themes as well, but I think Wood uh, in about 10,000 words or so, does a really good job at building a good primer on the subject. So I, I definitely commend that one to your reading list. Um, and then the second one is one that uh, came out in mid-May in New York Times Magazine. It's called The Last Day of Her Life. And this one's really heart-wrenching. Uh, it's about a, a woman who is a uh, professor at a school in Pennsylvania, I believe. And she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's in her 50s. I think it was her 50s. Uh, or early 60s. W- way too young, essentially, is the bottom line here. So she was she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And she decided at that point, once uh, she came to grips with the diagnosis, that she uh, wanted to essentially end her life while she was still in control of her mind. Mm. And so the, the story, very well written, is about her decision to do that and how she followed through on that. Uh, and I think it's a really... It's a really interesting piece because it brings up some questions about about what a person is. You know, what makes a person a person? Um, What uh, what makes life worth living if we don't have our minds? Uh, Is is our mind and the function, the healthy function of our mind, somehow uh, you know inextricably linked to uh, who we are as a person and our humanity? Um, And so, obviously, the follow on to that is what are the ethics of a, of killing yourself if you know that you are losing your mind, etc. Uh, my own position on the matter is that you know it's never justifiable to end your own life. But it was a very, um, I think, compassionately written and thought-provoking article. Even for you know for someone like me who disagrees with the decision to end one's own life, um, it, it did it did a lot I think to help me uh, empathize and understand those decisions. And so that was also a good read for those reasons. So It's rec- not in first
2: person. This is an. In- this is
0: correct yeah this is not in first person this is written by a a journalist who was who spent a lot of time uh, with the family so uh, but definitely an interesting article as well so and then while we're on the topic of good articles another one to mention and this is not recent this is about from about two years ago but this is one of the more fun pieces i've probably ever read uh and just just from a pure fascination standpoint it's called dear leader dreams of sushi (laughs) and it uh it appeared in gq uh, and it's about a guy named Kenji Fujimoto, who for a long time, he's a Japanese man, but for, who for a long time was the uh, sushi chef for the late Kim Jong-il of North Korea. Uh, and so it's, it's a fascinating story uh, that has, you know, all the elements uh, that you would expect uh, in a story about a dictator or a dictator chef. Uh, so lots of lies and intrigue and... Um, Sounds like a movie. It, it, yeah, it's really fascinating. It should you should be. definitely you should definitely check it out, Anne. Dear Leader Dreams of Sushi um,
2: title. Oh yeah,
0: God. yeah, no, it, was, it was perfect. So that's just, I mean, the hermit kingdom is such a fascinating place. I have a mini obsession with it. Last summer, Sally knows. well oh, she definitely knows because I did this all the time. I went on like a three week spree where I would just watch North Korea documentaries every night. <laughs> <Are> <laughs> you serious? Yeah. Um, uh, it's, it's UN. just it's
1: like, Oh, let's hang out. Oh, what North Korea documentary <laughs> is on available today. <laughs>
2: Imagine you like trying to disguise the title now here i'm going to play the feminine um stereotype card forgive me but because my taste tends to sometimes go for you but male i feel like i'm allowed to say this you probably <laughs> would disguise like the netflix ti- you would try to order the north korean netflix titles that sounded like the great new chick flick you know? <laughs> exactly. right
1: it's not what i was expecting
2: <laughs> but in the sponsor there, um, real quick on the um that I did read that long Atlantic Isis ISIL piece by Wood, I thought it was um, fantastic and in some ways a little late. I thought it was a little late to have that piece, but um, sure sure but it was very well taken, and just one thing that I just like a broader point that was refreshing about it was, um, especially given the risk factor involved for, for what I would think was, um, just the ability and the desire to get into another group's head, however crazy they may seem. Definitely. And I just think that's something I'm just noticing more and more that so especially as we head into not to overdraw comparisons, but especially as we head into another political cycle and, um, I think just as I find myself in a very diverse city, uh, where in some ways it's a melting pot, in some ways it's, it's not at all like just, just the skill and let let alone all of our media feeds and how we are getting information, just like the sheer, um, openness and desire to understand how someone else and and another tribe is thinking. Um, it's like something that I feel like people talk about a lot as a high value, but we, we, are doing it really poorly these days, um, and there was something very refreshing about Woods' approach in that piece, and obviously very needed. The, the stakes are high at understanding ISIS, like in its most crystallized form, but just as like a, the broader principle was um, was was unique and rare. I mean, that's what journalism should do all the time, but it doesn't.
0: Right, definitely. Yeah, I'm going to call it right now, right here. I think Graham Woods going to win the Pulitzer for that piece. Mm. We'll see.
1: Mm-hmm. Stay tuned. (laughs) (laughs) See if that prediction comes true. Yeah, we'll
0: see. Well, I think now we'll transition to our next segment.
1: Welcome back to Vernacular Podcast. For our lifestyle segment today, we are going to talk about food, which is one of our favorite topics, and one of Anne's as well because she is a lover of Peruvian food and actually a creator of it too. She makes it very well, I must say. And um, this... And it's a type of food that I actually don't know very much about, but Nuevo Latino. And the Peruvian food is especially interesting to me because I just heard a segment on NPR this past week about um, Peru's, they say he's the godfather of Peruvian cuisine, and and you probably know more about him than I do, but his name is Gaston Acurio, I think that's how you pronounce it. Oh,
0: wasn't he in uh, Beauty and the Beast? (laughs)
1: Yeah, I know. Yeah. No, maybe, maybe he made that guess. Maybe that is actually he eats him. Like five
0: dozen eggs every morning. Yeah. To help and him get strong. Or exactly. Something.
1: Yeah. And, but now he's transitioned to Peruvian oh, fare okay, nice. <laughs> and written a cookbook that just came out called Peru. And it looks like it's definitely a tome. It's just humongous. And, and yeah, I, I guess it's just very comprehensive. But anyways, um, I just thought it was interesting to hear that Peruvian food is, kind of becoming more popular now around the country and especially I guess you're likely to see ceviche on, on the menu, but, um, but most of us don't know too much more about Peruvian food. So
2: I'm having trouble getting those like enormous, the animated biceps flexing at random times out of my head. (laughs) Um, so, yeah, Peruvian food, I am I'm biased. I grew up eating it in part because my mother grew up there for her childhood, so she kind of carried the tradition into our kitchen. Um, but I do think it's the best food in South America, and that's not including, I mean, Mexico is its own, Mexico is not South America, So, but if you're going to put Mexico in the whole bucket of Latin American food, I, I would say it could get a tie with Peruvian, um, just in terms of, diversity of options on the menu, breadth of flavors, breadth of spices. Um, Peru is interesting because their food has been fairly significantly influenced by the influx of um, Chinese and Japanese immigrants that came over after World War II, and so a lot of their, they have something very famous that a lot of Americans love, especially if they visit Lima, called Loma Saltado, which is like a very um, steak, flat iron, cut really sli- uh, thinly, put in a very hot pan with um, white wine, white vinegar, and cilantro, and... Um, tomatoes and red onions and usually potatoes sliced thinly too and um some soy sauce and it's just got it's got this like kind of asian latin fusion of flavors um with with a very like certain kind of peruvian white rice which is a cross between indian and chinese in terms of it's like um texture so it's just like it's uh there's something about peruvian food it's just it's like it's not all plantains rice and beans (laughs) (laughs) i love those those staples but um it just has it uses a lot of cilantro a lot of garlic and then something that's specific to the andes with pepper called aji
1: ah yeah Gaston on talked about that on npr
2: yeah so like usually when you go into peruvian restaurant you'll get if it's a nice restaurant they'll put it in a little shallow bowl if it's more just like off the sidewalk type you'll have almost like a, a ketchup or mustard bottle it, but instead of ketchup and mustard you'll have um green ahi or red ahi or yellow ahi and it's just it's a very hot, spicy paste. Um So is this have,
0: completely unrelated to ahi tuna?
2: Right, no not related. Yeah
1: I think it's with the <laughs> <Okay. a> J. <laughs> oh, okay.
0: Very unrelated. <laughs>
2: but I wish. Actually we should try combining those. Um and, you know, and you put it on everything. You put it on your potatoes, the potato stuff with ground beef, um, potatoes with a special, like, cheese sauce, and, you um it's just fun. I think, like, for me, I, I cannot divorce Peruvian food from the photographs of, like, Quechua girls and the beautiful, bright woven, um, like, capes they have. Just And with next to llamas or llamas, as Americans would say, and a picture of Machu Picchu, there's sort of, like, there's just a sensibility to both the jungle side of Peru and the, um, the mountainous region, which has sort of got a haunted feel to it. And you... You kind of go back to the Incas, and there's just like a sensibility, and you hear flutes like El Condor Pasa. There's just like a a haunted, but very warm and gracious sensibility to the Peruvian way, I guess, that infuses the flavors of the food, at least for me.
1: Yeah, I I think that you yeah you've captured well just the diversity of flavor and and as you said cuisines that go into just the Peruvian cuisine. Because um, again, in this segment that I was listening to, the chef was just saying that that Peruvian food is just a melting pot of all these different cultures put together. And um, and he said, I'm looking at the, the transcript of, of the interview, and he said, in every dish sometimes you will find a smile of Africa and China and Spain at the same time. But when you taste it, you will recognize it as something different. This is Peruvian. And I just love that. I just thought that sounded great. And I didn't realize that when I've had Peruvian food in the fa- in the past, and I guess just hearing that, I think, that must be why I like it.
2: (laughs) No, that's great. And you mentioned um, Nuevo Latino, Latino, which I is sort of, I don't, you know, it it may have existed, like New American. I mean, Nuevo Latino may have been a term that's been used for 10 years. I don't know how long that's been, but I am noticing that it's becoming more popular, and it would tend to be, like, nicer, say, like, between 20 and $35 for an entree. So like nicer restaurants. But I, I do, when I go to like nuevo Latino restaurants, I find it's inspired by a lot of like Peruvian. Okay. Natures. So I do still see Peru as a base, but then they'll often add, you know, they'll have, to, it's funny that you guys are asking me this because in 36 minutes, I will be going to a Nueva Latino restaurant. Oh, perfect. Um, <laughs> to try to persuade someone to move to Houston. <laughs> so that's my selling point. Um, but it's, uh, they will borrow from like a great Argentinian steak with churrasco sauce. And they'll like take from the street foods uh, like Buenos Aires and Lima and some specific things from Ecuador. And each country has a little bit of their unique thing. And then they'll, they kind of mash it together and then make it look French on the plate is how I would describe it. Wow. Like,
1: okay, well, let's back up for a second and talk about Peruvian food again. So ceviche seems like a pretty classic Peruvian dish. Could you just kind of describe that for us? There's fish involved, right?
2: Yes, it is raw seafood. um, And I think you can use like different types of fish. Often it's like a very clean tilapia uh, type, but it's totally raw, not cooked, but it's like cured and marinated for a very long time in, or typically a long time in citrus juices, like lemon, lime, occasionally orange. Um, And then they'll put like peppers on it or again that aji pepper from the Andes. Um, And then it's actually really famous for being paired with something called, um, it's like, oh my goodness, what's the name of it? I'm going to blank. But it's like a Actually, think I made it for you, want, Sally. It's a, <laughs> no, a salad. <laughs> no, it's an onion. It's like a raw onion salad where onions are just, like, soaked in lime juice and cilantro and are, actually often oregano for, like, six hours, and it, like, really takes the sting out of the onion, but makes them sweet, and Ooh. and that's,
1: uh, it's so called. it's combined salsa together?
2: Salsa criolla, that's what that's called, Yeah. Um, are, do I have that right? Yes, that's the criolla. And it's combined, it's usually paired with the ceviche. Okay. And so, then
1: do you, you put the ceviche on things? I feel like that's how I've eaten it. You put it on top of some meat. Is that... you?
2: Um, Not, usually you eat it with, you either eat it with um like a really big, these really big corn kernels, um or you eat it with these onions, or you eat it with like sweet potatoes or yam. But no, you don't usually, you don't pair the raw fish with... Another kind
1: of meat typically. Okay. okay. Yeah. Um again, Gaston Acurio <laughs> was saying in his that in his cookbook, I think there's like twenty five different varieties of ceviche, or maybe not even that many, but but many, many <laughs> recipes that he's, I guess, curated from various sources. So Yeah.
2: Cool. Well I'm gonna have to check this guy out. Right? I know. He sounds like the man.
1: I think he is. I yeah. mean he
0: netted Bell, so <laughs> <laughs>
1: Um, thank you (laughs) (laughs) well thanks Anne thanks for weighing in on Peruvian food and and Nuevo Latino and giving us a a little sense of both of those cuisines I'm just
0: proud of of how much I contributed to that conversation
1: you become a journalist and and is that something that you always wanted to do or that you fell into through other avenues?
2: Yeah, no, I definitely never thought I was going to be a journalist. Um, Never even really wanted to be exactly, or I didn't know I wanted to be. I joke that the one editorial, which isn't even really well, it's not reporting, it's this type of journalism, but the one editorial I wrote in college was rejected by the then editor of our campus paper who is now, it's funny, she's actually at the Washington Post and we're friends and she, we know each other and she recently solicited a piece for me and I was like, no, isn't this ironic? Do you remember what you did to me when I was 21? <laughs> um, so anyways, I, I, I did not set out to be it. I had always been, in, people had always told me that Um, I should try my hand at writing professionally something about I don't know my prose style or um, just I do love words I grew up um, a fairly serious pianist and just love music and I think something about loving music um, has always infused my writing with a certain rhythm that is just a fun with a fun with a fun with like the art of language Um, and then Uh, yeah, I mean, my career path has been kind of all over, not all over the place, but a little bit of a river circuitous. Um, I wound Mm up more through force of loving certain ideas, um, and caring about, uh, certain like philosophies of thought combined with wanting to really understand some large social trends today, and then also really loving individual stories and human beings, um, As I wound up in jobs that kind of allowed me to explore those interests, I did find myself, my first newspaper job was at the New York Times, and while I wasn't in the newsroom, it kind of exposed me to that world. And while there, um, I was doing a lot of research at a more high conceptual level for a couple columnists, um, but then also thought, well, maybe I should try, I'm sort of scared to, all these people seem so busy around me, but I'm I'm inspired by how curious they are about the world and they seem to love their jobs. Um, but this is the New York Times after all, and it's the Washington Bureau, which is like the extra cream of the cream of the crop. Like I can't ask. Very inexperienced me cannot ask them for advice about how to actually get into this profession. So I wound up the the Times has this policy where they'll let you they'll pay for you t- your tuition um, if you effort to get a master's in a degree that's relevant to your role.
1: That's there, that's great. What a good program.
2: Yeah, it was it was great. So I wound up um, getting a master's in journalism at nighttime for a few years at um, Georgetown locally there, and that kind of gave me the confidence to just. It's like so many people today, you don't want to ask anyone how to baste a chicken because you feel like you should know it. (laughs) And it was sort of like that for me. I was like suddenly in a safe space with a lot of other, um, actually people of all ages. So that kind of, in a weird, like uh, sort of backhanded way, wound up putting me in this sort of like, maybe I am a journalist, I should just wear that hat, um, and started trying my hand at writing various things, some of which were very journalistic. Others were just a little bit more reflective, doing sort of more the bookish way of writing a piece, which is um, trying to tie it to a current trend, but reading a lot of historic stuff beforehand. Um, And I think along the way, just discovered a real love for the interview itself as one piece of the process. Like I just have never ceased to marvel at um, the magic of like discovering a person layer by layer and like what happens when you ask a question that they weren't expecting. Not not a gotcha question, but just through some insight or intuition, seeing, kind of reading between the lines organically in the process and understanding them enough so that you can ask something that prompts a thought or a revelation that they themselves hadn't even had about their circumstances or their past or where they want to go. And that actual like human exchange was deeply satisfying to me. And I somehow drew on my own life experiences and some native gifts I had. And from there, various um, people, both colleagues at the times, and then what wound up being a future employer were just like, we really think you have an ability to capture people's voices. um, And we'd like to invest in you doing that. Um, And we just think there's sort of a, there is an ache. Well, everyone is ADD and can't read long stories. Now at the same time, there does seem to be an ache for people who can like really Um, shoot a photograph, a verbal photograph of like the human heart and human aspiration and some of the more invisible things motivating us. So um, so that's kind of where I find myself is like trying to tell empirical, like trying to tell tell a story that is empirically rooted, that has data involved in it, that may have some philosophical worldview undergirding it, or at least trying to describe what that is accurately, but then also interweave with, um, you know, idiosyncratic human opinion, perspective, yeah.
0: etc. Well, that pretty well preempted my next question, which was going to be, what do you like to write about? But I guess I'll follow that up with a second question uh, and just ask you to put that a little more tangibly. So I guess maybe talk about some of your recent pieces um, or thematically, this the stuff that you write about. Um, yeah. And then would you also be willing to share with us some of the recent stuff you've done so we can um, put that up with our podcast and direct our listeners to it?
2: Oh, sure, I'd be honored. Thank you. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, yeah, so I just finished a bigger piece for me, actually. It was really fun. I was not expecting it to be so fun, actually. At Philanthropy Magazine, which is a quarterly that is run by the Philanthropy Roundtable, um, which is, I guess, a think tank. I don't quite know how to describe them. Maybe more of a convener uh, in DC of like philanthropists around the country. They asked me to write a piece on this new online university called University of the People. Oh, I guess it's been around six years. It was founded by this Israeli entrepreneur, Shira Chef. There's a TED Talk about it you can find. Um, it's called University of the People, and it's the first tuition-free, accredited, nonprofit online university of its kind, and to, the only two have succeeded. And what's at first, when I heard the name, I was like, oh, this sounds like Hillary Clinton's, like, it, it takes every, you know, it takes a village. I, I don't know. I just wasn't, like, particularly interested, and in, I've never myself taken an online class, and I'm just such an in-person person that I was, I just haven't been that interested, even though I know this is, like, a major, this is a major development of our time, and I should know about you know, MOOCs and I should probably experiment with them. But this is a different model where they have really small classes and they're drawing, it's like 20 to 30 students in a class. They offer right now only two concentrations, business administration and computer science. And they, um, their students are just extraordinarily unique. They're like you almost would say they're, like, desperately motivated. So I, like, interviewed mostly over Skype, a few in person. I I interviewed some undocumented um, immigrants in Houston, but it was largely I was, like, talking over video Skype with refugees in Syria and orphans in Rwanda. And, wow. and single moms yeah. from Appalachia and a girl who had, like, gone into $40,000 of debt because of medical issues at her community college in Washington State had had to leave her home because it was sort of an abusive environment, and she just, like, gung-ho picked herself up and wow. found, found, this, found this program. And they're just, like, so refreshingly non-entitled. They are, like, just um they all have other you know they're all working full time um and what was also interesting so the school is, is relatively new and the founders really trying among other things is really trying to show that there is a very cost effective way using um open educational resources that are so available now like all the content is free but it's also curated they um They've been able to attract like Harvard professors and Stanford professors and like great engineering textbook writers from Olin College and these very prestigious places to come and um, like really design a curriculum that will work online um, uh, Anyways, it's just like it's. They, he's he's just like gathered like a set of admirers around him from all over the world, and presidents. He's like a, got a bunch, He's got like NYU's presidents. He's got the Chancellor of Oxford. He's got some very interesting people that are all like part of his Council of Advisors, who really believe in this as a way to kind of um, offset some of the pressures they're feeling. And NYU, for instance, has set up a program where. Like, they're seeing this University of the People as a search engine for talent from some of the poorest regions of the world. So, like, there was this guy who had survived the Haiti earthquake, entered University of the People, got straight A's his freshman year, wound up being offered a full scholarship to go to NYU Abu Dhabi.
1: Oh, my goodness.
2: They gave him stipends to go back home to Haiti. He now wants to go back to Haiti to rebuild and uh, start teaching like IT for some of the village. Anyways, oh, that's amazing. It's just, like, it's just like it's a fascinating student body. It's a very interesting model. We'll see how self-sustaining it is. The goal yeah. is for it to be self-sustaining. Um, but I just think it's like... I was just I was I just got so like wrapped up in the personalities involved in this, and it was a hopeful. It was a way in which I became much more positive about technology. Yeah, not the be all end all, but there is a way, if carefully constructed, that a it can really help people further their lives. But it can also like there is a sense in which it can provide, you know, not the kind of community you would have on your in your like a tightly knit neighborhood, but a certain kind of community if you have you know you're meeting. Your class is only 20 people. Every student is from somewhere else in the world. You're getting to know their context that they're bringing into debates and and across time zones, and um, so it was just it was really fun. It was really fun, but also like enabled me to like step back and try to understand the larger educational debate going on around escalating costs in higher ed and how you know the status signaling system it's become and. Is that going to go away? So anyways, a lot of big ideas mixed with the very human personalities. Um, So that was a blast.
1: Yeah. Well, that sounds like a great article.
2: Well, we hope so. I handed it in, so hopefully they don't. Yeah. Well, I have to publish it. (laughs) Well,
0: even if it's not, uh, not ready to go uh, by the time we get this podcast up, definitely let us know when it goes up so we can update. Retroactively
1: link to it. Yeah. uh,
0: Update our blog. I'd
1: love to. Thank you. Yeah. Well, um, as of, final question, just with all of your experience as a writer and a journalist and getting to the point where you are now, what advice would you have for aspiring journalists and writers?
2: Um, I would just say don't think too much. And I say this in part because well, both at the level of the craft, but also at the level of where how intimidating it can be these days because there's so much noise up there. So the level of the craft, my huge Achilles heel is I procrastinate, and I'm way too careful, and I want to research everything before I say anything, and that can lead to paralysis, and you just wind up producing far less than you'd then you really can, you know, if you're just like relax. Um, but the other thing today, this morning, I was speaking with a new friend here in Houston. He was just saying, he's like, I really want to write. Like, if I could do anything, I would love to be a columnist for the New York Times. I guess my ideal job, but those jobs are going away. And and he's, I think he's a very talented writer. Just just these vis- like how he expresses himself. In some right. emails we've exchanged. But he was just like really twiddling his thumbs around being so afraid that he has, like, no reason to write because what readership is out there? Like, no one, he's like, I don't respect blogs. Everyone's starting a blog. I don't even read them. Um, And I just sort of, you know, at the one hand, I, of course, totally understand the impulse to say there's too much noise out there. What can you contribute? But I just think for anyone who either wants to write casually or, or, frankly, do a podcast like this or... Or more seriously, head into journalism. I just think you have to practice. You you just have to you have to practice and do it on your like carve out the time to do it, Um, which usually means mornings before you ever check email and get you know any other distractions going in your head. Um, So that's I don't that's probably not an institutionally or um, like milieu aware response to your question because it's more about like the individual willpower. No, I think that's really Um,
1: helpful. I mean because people who are hoping to take that route with their career, sometimes it just means putting your nose to the grindstone.
2: It does. And then you, it's surprising. I mean, one thing you can do, you could just, you can start blogs and you can link to other people's work and then they'll find you. I mean, there are ways to get noticed. Um, and I just, I think it's worth just getting yourself out there if you really want to do this. So,
0: um, one final question. I was intrigued by your answer on our pre-interview questionnaire to the uh-huh. question about who you'd want to have over for dinner, uh, and your answer, as you probably yeah, recall, remind me yeah, it was uh, Augustine you
2: day by day.
0: Yeah, it was Augustine, presumably of Hippo, not of Canterbury, but perhaps of Canterbury. Uh, Augustine and Jesus Christ and Christopher Hitchens. So i i I was wondering if you could just talk uh, briefly. Uh, before we close, about why you think that combination would be interesting.
2: Well, I was worried it almost might be cliche, but it just sort of it just came to me spur of the moment, and I guess all three of those because I never met Christopher Hitchens, but I know people who knew him fairly well, and just watching him, what video I've seen of him, what I've heard of him, what I've read, I've always found him to have a little twinkle in his eye, and he's also very emotional. And um, and yet very brilliant, very smart, obviously. And Augustine, when I read the Confessions, I see is like very emotional and very smart. And yet went through a conversion process. And um, Hitchens, I think, you know, was sort of convinced he could never go through a conversion process from a religious standpoint. So I kind of wanted to have the two of them like twinkle at each other and argue crazily. Hopefully over Peruvian food, which would really. <laughs> the whole
1: night fires, And then is Jesus the moderator? And,
2: uh, yeah, I'm sort of thinking Jesus is the moderator. <laughs> um, but no, I guess I've always thought, and this is, like, it, you can't say this necessarily about any Christian, but you, I, I've i always thought, like, if Hitchens just, like, walked into Jerusalem and there was Christ, like, in the middle, like, he wouldn't he have to fall down? Like, wouldn't he have to, wouldn't he be softened? Um, and so I just, I somehow thought... To have someone who who was seemed to be like Hitchens in a prior life, then went through a conversion and like still in a very passionate way, but like fought his way to be one of the leading church leaders of the time, with the originator of that church, then with someone who was I always found to be like practically um, practically Christian in his zeal and sympathies, while like intellectually s- seemingly so anti.
0: Yeah, definitely. Uh, that's that's interesting. You're actually the first person to yeah. It's
1: not a cliche at the Vernacular Podcast, at least. <laughs> yeah, you're the
0: first person to have Jesus as someone you'd invite to dinner, of our cool. of our inter- interview questionnaires. So I thought that was interesting. But I'm wondering why no one has has done uh, like, like a combination of, you know, something like Jesus buddha and muhammad or jesus mm. buddha and confucius or buddha get all Confucius, these of and religions muhammad together. Or, you know what right. i mean like that would be a fascinating dinner table conversation yeah yeah, no
2: kidding. yeah sold out crowd
1: right yeah, yeah exactly well speaking of dinner we should probably let you get to your dinner yes and yeah. ditto to
2: you i wish you guys were eating ceviche but pizza will have to do for now
0: indeed <laughs>
1: It's a good thank
2: second. You to
0: Peruvian food. Thank you so much, Anne. It was a lot yeah, of fun talking to you. Yeah, it was great to have you.
2: Yeah, really fun. Thanks. I'm honored, and uh, yeah, I look forward to following Vernacular in the months ahead. Thank,
0: right, well, thank you. Thank you.
1: And our listeners will look forward to reading and following you as well.
0: Yeah, okay. definitely send us your work.
1: Okay, I will do. Thank All
0: you right. both. Have a good
1: night. You too. Bye. Bye.
0: All right. well, we almost reached the end of this episode of Vernacular, but before we sign off, Sally, let's check the inbox.
1: Okay. All right, we have an email from Caitlin. This is... Caitlin is from Texas and she says, I enjoyed the segment on date night ideas and would like to submit another money saving option. Move back to Texas and we will babysit for free. It's hard to find quality childcare, let alone free quality childcare. Just say you'll consider it. That
0: is definitely true. And we (laughs) will consider that Caitlin.
1: (laughs) Definitely. That would be wonderful. And we could just babysit for you in return.
0: So right now uh, Sally and I are limited to date nights in which Sally's sister, uh, comes, uh, and babysits for us. So we've had two of those date nights
1: because she lives four hours away right since we've lived
0: here and we've had uh we've had three dates that we've been on just sally and i since uh our daughter's been born
1: yeah so, <laughs> so it really
0: is hard to come by uh, good free childcare. <laughs> so we'd love to take you up on that caitlin
1: and we are happy to announce that caitlin and her husband will will be our guests on the next episode of vernacular
0: so make sure to tune in to episode seven well, that about wraps it up for us at Vernacular. Before we go, please don't forget to check us out on Facebook, facebook.com slash vernacularpodcast. Also follow us on Twitter at vernacularpod or check out our website, vernacularpodcast.com. And also don't forget that you could be a guest on our show. We'd love to talk to you and hear your story. So if you have any interest in joining us, please go to our website, vernacularpodcast.com. And fill out our interview questionnaire there, and we'll look forward to getting back to you as soon as we can.
1: And if you have feedback on any of our episodes, you can email us at Zach and Sally at vernacularpodcast.com.
0: And we will read your feedback on the show. Our closing music today is called Heroin Queen. It's a song from Jordan Short and his band. For more information on Jordan, check out episode five. All right, for vernacular podcast, I'm Zach.
1: And I'm Sally.
0: Have a great week. When I'm by your side Feeling better than ever When you're with me tonight